This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the mid-19th century court case of Celia, a female slave who killed her master after repeated sexual assaults. It's taught by University of Michigan professor Martha Jones. This episode was recorded in 2014. Uh, But today we're going to continue the discussion that we began a couple of weeks ago, um, talking about the history of slavery, and in particular, the experiences of enslaved women. Um, We've already had a chance to look at the case of Harriet Jacobs, one of the best remembered of the uh, slave narratives Um, there. Jacobs introduced us, if you will, um, to that dimension of slavery that is especially um, illustrated, exemplified, and and we might say central to the experience of slave women, and that is sexual violence. And we'll come back a little bit to talk about Jacobs in comparison to our case today, that of Celia. Um, We've also looked at the WPA narratives, and one of the things we noticed about those narratives, as you'll recall, was the extent to which some issues, um, including sexual violence, violence generally, but sexual violence in particular, was rather muted um, in the slave narratives. And so here we have an opportunity um, with the Celia case to take another pass at this question um, to try and see this dimension of slavery through the experience of Celia. So why do I say try to see this dimension of slavery? Well, as you all have already begun to see in your readings for today, um, there are many ways in which the record, the evidence upon which we rely to discover, explore, and understand the case of Celia um, is a challenging record to make use of. And so part of our work today will be to talk about the evidence in the Celia case, how it is that we recover from what is in essence the record of a trial, um, a rather fragmentary, um, carefully but idiosyncratically assembled group of testimonies, written and oral, um, arguments of lawyers, conclusions of judges, that mixed with a little bit of newspaper reportage, um, some demographic material like census returns, how we take this fragmentary evidence um, and try to think um, in thoroughgoing ways about Celia's experience, but also about how we have to continue to think critically about the evidence that we use, what it can tell us, um, and perhaps what it can't tell us um, about Celia's story. You all have read uh, Melton McLaurin's book, and McLaurin's is the first popular historical um, book-length treatment of Celia's story. Um, But I want to sketch out for you the terms of that narrative for the purposes of our discussion today. Um, And again, this comes um, as a kind of fragmentary narrative, one that is very driven by uh, by the court record, by the legal artifacts in this case. The first thing we know is that um, there's very little for us to say about Celia's young life, Um, that we don't meet her in a formal sense in the historical record until she's, how old? Do you remember how old she is when she comes into this story? Anybody? 14 years old, right? So she's 14 years old when she first appears to us. She is, as we come to understand it, a young enslaved woman in Audrian County um, in central Missouri. 
and she is purchased by Robert Newsom, a small farmer in the county of Callaway, the town of Fulton in Missouri. He travels to Adrian, he purchases Celia, and from the very moment of that encounter, almost from the very moment of that encounter, um, our story is framed because we learn that Celia is very soon sexually assaulted by, uh, by Newsom. Um, some say um, even in the journey back to Fulton, um, but certainly by very quickly after they arrive at his farm. What is this place to which Celia has come? <clears throat> we know that Newsom is a recent widower. In his household um, are his children, who are now adults, his daughters, um, as well as a grandson, um, Coffee, Wayne Scott. Um, Newsom is a small farmer. This is not a plantation setting. This is not a large-scale enterprise. At most, um, in 1850, he owned five enslaved people in addition to Celia. By 1860, we will own um, just Celia and one other um, enslaved person, um, a man named George, who we'll meet later. So he is a small slaveholder, typical of central Missouri. Uh, he makes his way as a subsistence farmer, um, growing crops and foodstuffs for his family, but also raising livestock. Um, there's some suggestion in the evidence that he's also a producer of whiskey. Uh, but Celia arrives not to do agricultural work, not to do farm labor, um, but she comes to do some household domestic labor within this house. But part of what we know is that over the next five years, she will become regularly and frequently the target of Newsom's sexual assaults. Newsom will build a small cabin for Celia 60 paces, 60 paces from his home, far away, but not too far away, as we learn, for him to visit um, regularly. She will come to live there in these years herself um, with then one and another child that she will bear, likely the children of Newsom himself, um, children we come to know um, as Vine and as Jane later on in the story. Um, and Celia, by 1855, is again pregnant for the third time. As the record explains, Celia tells people she's sick. She's pregnant again. Um, whether preg sick is a metaphor for pregnancy or, in fact, she's having a difficult pregnancy, it's clear that Celia does not want to abide or to accommodate or to acquiesce again um, going forward to Newsom's sexual advances. The first thing she appears to do is to speak to Newsom's daughters. She asks the women in this household to intervene on her behalf, um, to in some way speak to their father and to see if he won't d d desist right, from assaulting her. Um, but they have no success, it seems. And then Celia has her own confrontation with Newsom. And here, um, for our purposes, the core of this story. She seems to advise him, don't come to see me. I will not accommodate your advances. I don't want to have sexual relations with you. I will not have sexual relations with you. Still, on a June night in 1855, Newsom will come 
those 60 steps from his own parlor to Celia's cabin. He will confront her, um, speak to her, but approach her um, in what is to Celia's mind, the suggestion that he will now sexually assault her, and we know that Celia defends herself. Um, she picks up a stick, a club, it's variously described, and she strikes Newsom once, again, and perhaps many times until he falls, is unconscious and dead in her cabin. What do you do if you're Celia? What do you do? Well, part of what we know is that when she retells the story, for a while she's stunned. She hasn't anticipated, hasn't quite intended to kill Newsom. She's intended to protect herself, to fend him off. But now, as she realizes he's dead, the question then becomes, how should she deal with that fact? We know that she attempts to conceal the evidence of what's transpired. Um, she will take Newsom's body, push it into the fireplace of her cabin. She will stoke the fire. And over the sec next six hours, she will attempt to dispose of the evidence of what has transpired. So much so that by morning, we know that very little is left. Um, some ashes, um, some bone, bone fragments. Um, but Celia um, is confident enough um, that she has concealed her act, that as morning breaks, she continues about the ordinary routine of the household. Um, she makes her way to the kitchen um, to begin to prepare breakfast for the Newsom family. Newsom's children uh, awake, their father is missing, and a search begins for Newsom. Um, it takes two major phases. Um, initially, Newsom's children search the farm itself. Has he wandered off? Um, has he had an accident? Um, but there's no sign of him. Neighbors join the search, and questioning begins. The interrogation, this informal but very important interrogation of people on the farm, um, one of whom is Newsom's grandson, who relates that he has helped Celia distribute the ashes from her fire um, in, um, along the path leading to the stable on the Newsom farm. Um, there is George, the enslaved man owned by Newsom. George um, relates, we'll come back to his testimony, but relates um, that, Neus that perhaps they want to search in the vicinity of Celia's cabin. Um, Celia herself, as we know, um, progressively tells a story. Initially, she denies any understanding of what Newsom's whereabouts, what might have happened to him. She then begins to piecemeal tell a story. Um, and we understand, in a sense, why that might have been. Um, the consequences for her act are grave, um, as we know. Um, and she um, begins to tell a story um, first about having um, Newsom having put his head through the window and having struck him um, and then his disappearing into the night. Um, but eventually, it seems, particularly under um, duress, that is, under the threat that, in fact, she may be separated from her children, um, Celia reveals to these neighbors, local farmers who have come to investigate the whereabouts of Newsom, she reveals to them out of the earshot of the Newsom children, she reveals that she in fact struck Newsom dead um, and then disposed of his body 
in the fireplace. We can follow the story then as it makes its way through now a legal frame. There is an inquest. These local neighbors who have been at the fore of the investigation, Newsom's children, and Celia herself will all give testimony um, before a local grand jury, leading to the indictment, the formal charging of Celia with Newsom's murder. There will be a trial. Again, many of these parties will come forward, retell their stories, with one exception. You remember who does not testify at the trial? Who does not testify? Celia herself does not testify at the trial. Um, because um, pursuant to Missouri law, as is typical in the United States in the mid-19th century, uh, no defendant um, is given the opportunity to testify at trial. Um, a defendant in 19th century legal culture is deemed to be too self-interested to give testimony. So T Celia herself does not testify, but many of the parties we, we have become familiar with do testify, and they retell, in a sense, Celia's story, Celia's version of events. And one of the things that becomes clear at trial, while there are facts in dispute, and we'll come back to a couple of them, the core of Celia's story is never in dispute. Right? There never is a question about her relationship to Newsom, the long-standing sexual abuse to which she's been subjected, and even how with her third child she has become sick and has tried to avoid and to fend off Newsom's sexual advances even before striking him with the club. This story, that is Celia's own story, is one that we see in parts adopted um, by the local farmers who have investigated the case by members of the Newsom family themselves, and ultimately by the court, this core narrative is one on which everyone comes to agree. Celia is ultimately found guilty by a local jury. We'll come back to the jury dynamics um, in our discussion. Um, she is sentenced to death by hanging. There's a curious interlude that I think we know too little about still. Um, Celia is secreted out of the jail and avoids the initial hanging date um, because she's been secreted out of jail and taken to a hiding place. Who's responsible for that and how that comes about I think is one of the mysteries of Celia's case. Um, but we know that ultimately she's returned to the local jail. A new execution date is set the State Court of Appeals hears preliminarily the possibility of Celia's appeal. Celia's lawyers ask if the High Court will stay or postpone her execution temporarily until there is a formal review of the legal proceedings in the trial court, and the answer is no. The High Court sees no legal merit, no likelihood that Celia will prevail on her appeal. They permit her execution to go forward, and on December 21st, 1855, she's hanged in Fulton, Missouri. So I want to come back with you today to revisit this case 
through some of the themes that we've been developing over the course of the last weeks, um, come back to Celia um, as its own story, but also as a window into the experience of slaved, enslaved women, the role of sexual assault in the context of slavery, but also to look at the ways in which law, the ways in which legal culture plays a critical role here in mid-1850s Missouri, judges, lawyers, grand juries, local jurors, investigators, witnesses, all playing a critical role in determining, if you will, in framing how we might interpret Celia's story, um, how we might um, come to conclude um, whether Celia um, was justified, right? You remember the case turns in part. Was Celia entitled to assert self-defense, right? When she acted, right, to, um, to put off Newsom, right? To resist his sexual assault, was she entitled to that sort of self-defense in the face of that imminent harm that Newsom surely was going to force upon her as he had before, or as an enslaved woman, was Celia without recourse? Not in life, because we know in life she had recourse and she, and she seized it. But before the law, did she have recourse? So those are gonna be um, our questions going forward today. So um, three sorts of questions. The first um, I wanna use for us to come back to Harriet Jacobs, um, who we visited um, a, a couple of weeks ago. Jacobs is, of course, perhaps the best remembered of enslaved women. Um, she's so well remembered in part uh, because she pens an extraordinary narrative. The book we come to know as Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, um, published under the pseudonym Linda Brent. But when we talked about Jacobs, we talked about incidents, and we uh, saw that if you will, as a form of testimony, right? complicated testimony filtered through um, Jacobs' own concerns about um, her reputation and her standing as a free black woman when she publishes this narrative, uh, um, filtered through um, anti-slavery politics. Um, but we read, you'll recall very carefully, um, to try and discern the ways in which Still through this narrative, Jacobs allows us to glimpse something of the, the persistence, the presence of sexual assault, the threat of sexual assault as part of enslaved women's lives. You'll remember in her story, Dr. Flint, um, the pseudonym for the owner of, uh, or the father of uh, Jacobs's owner, um, the way in which this man in his household in Edenton, North Carolina, um, over the course of years, um, threatens, confronts, um, promises, almost promises, right, to um, ultimately have access to Jacobs's body, right, um, to have sexual relations with her. She lives under this threat. It is so present in her life that we know um, in the broad strokes that she will ultimately secret herself away for those dramatic seven years in the attic of her grandmother's home um, until she's finally able to make her way north and to freedom. Um, but how would we compare these two stories? 
um, Jacobs on the one hand and Celia on the other, what sort of, um, in what ways should we compare them? In what ways are these stories similar stories um, for you? And in what ways are they contrasting stories? And just hands. Yeah, Katie. the differences in the support systems that Jacobs and Celia had, that at least Jacobs had her grandmother and her other family members and sort of was in this not so isolated area where her grandmother had the position in the community to protect her and she could appeal to her white lover to protect her and Celia didn't have that. She had George maybe, but not as much of a support system. Yeah. Um, going off of that, she had, Celia was like the oldest one, and she didn't really have you know, like a role model to look up to, and she also had her kids to take care of, um, given, and, and the fact that she was so much more isolated in such a rural environment, mm -hmm. she was kind of all on her own. Good. What about other folks? How would you compare these two women? Um, I, these artifacts I put up um, not by accident. Um, on the left, you have the uh, title page from Jacobs's book. And on the right, we have uh, a justice of the peace's writing of Celia's testimony. But I think maybe I have a, oh, no, that wasn't it. Let's try this. But here, down on the right, you can see um, the X. Other differences? Yeah, Andrea. Um, to go along with that, in the family element, there's also that element of literacy. Um, Terry Jacobs did, was literate and did have her own memoir, um, but Celia couldn't. So that, there, that comes into play of whether or not she would have had a different outcome for her trial or not. Are kind of different because Harriet Jacobs obviously was was written by herself, and so her story we kind of know um, through what she's told us. And Celia's, Celia's story is kind of what we know from the court cases and testimonies, um, which can be kind of questionable. Yeah. So this is great. A part of um, this question about literacy um, come back to these uh, the question of isolation because I think literacy and isolation might be two ways in which we can think about dramatically um, the ways in which. Um, not only these stories unfold, but our capacity to tell them and remember them are shaped. Um, yes, right? Jacobs um, is literate, even as she's an enslaved woman in North Carolina. Um, we remember um, this becomes part of the drama between her um, and Dr. Flint, um, precisely because he, he passes, as part of his terror, right, is to pass her notes um, in this. Um, yeah, Siobhan. I was just going to focus on a similarity between them. Mm, One thing I good. noticed is that I feel like they really didn't have anything to lose except when it came to their children. Because of Jacobs, you know, she wouldn't have stayed in that attic for seven years if it wasn't for her looking out for the safety of her children. And then with Celia, it wasn't until um, the interrogator was threatening her children where she felt like she kind of had to cave in. So I honestly believe if it wasn't for them having children, they would have done anything to get out of the situation. Very good. So we've got 
um, two, two nodes of difference and one important piece of similarity. And so I'll come, we'll come back to that. So, um, but to come back to the literacy question, uh, we know Jacobs to have had the capacity to read um, and to write. And this plays a role, perhaps we would say, um, in her capacity to have a kind of critical consciousness, um, whether it's um, her own ability to read the notes of um, Dr. Flint or to read the Bible um, and to develop a, a, a critical, a critique of slavery um, and the conditions under which she lives. Um, Jacobs is someone um, for whom literacy plays a key role in her lifetime. And for us as historians, we know that her literacy is of extraordinary consequence because we have not only her, uh, her narrative incidents in the life of a slave girl, but then we have her correspondence over many years. Um, and so we're able to recover, in a sense, a kind of nuance, a kind of interiority um, for Harriet Jacobs that eludes us in Celia's case, in part because Celia is at an extraordinary distance from writing. Even here in this, what is said to be um, her testimony or her confession, um, we recognize that this text has been um, come through some very complex channels before it arrives to us, right? Celia narrates a story. A justice of the peace listens to the story, writes his own interpretation, if you will, of her words. And then Celia signs with an X, but we're right to be skeptical about this sort of artifact, precisely because we know Celia herself could not read and review the document, even as the X suggests that she somehow assented to its content. So I think literacy is an important piece. A number of you mentioned isolation. Right? And here, isolation in Celia's story takes a number of forms, doesn't it? Um, on the one hand, we could contrast her experience with that of Jacobs, who lives in a small town um, where she has regular access. Um, we'll come back to her family. But even in the intercourse of her day-to-day -day life with free African Americans, um, with um, other white people um, in Edenton, that Jacobs has a kind of um, world right, um, that becomes critical to understanding how she resists the doctor and ultimately how she escapes. It is that proximity to other people. Celia, by contrast, you're absolutely right. Um, what her life was like in Audrey County, we can't say, right? We don't know. Um, but certainly we know that when she makes that brief migration, if you will, from Audrian to Fulton and to the Newsom farm, she is clearly without family, without acquaintances, and the isolation of that farm, many miles from small downtown Fulton, um, means that she does not have the kind of access to allies, to information, to resources that Jacobs herself had. That's most vividly underscored by the question of family, isn't it? We know the role that family plays, a powerful role that family plays for Harriet Jacobs, her grandmother and her uncle early on, who not only provide her psychological support, um, but they are a sort of moral compass, right, if you will, that 
buttresses Jacob's critique of her own condition, right? That she has these kinds of family interlocutors um, who are very, very critical to her developing critique and her resistance to Dr. Flint over time. Again, Celia, unclear. Five slaves in that household in 1850, only two adult slaves, Celia and George, by the time Newsom is killed. Um, what sort of community might that have been for Celia? A, a, a modest one, um, perhaps one um, in, what, that was profoundly transient, right? We see enslaved people there and then disappear, right? Are they sold? Do they run away? We can't say, but we know that there's a transience um, to this. And while she certainly seems to have an intimate relationship with George, um, we can see the ways in which um, that was a modest um, and perhaps somewhat impoverished context relative to um, Jacobs's um, choice. Siobhan pointed to the similarity. Um, and they are both mothers. And motherhood is a theme that we've come back to um, again and again. Um, and we see two women um, who clearly, on the one hand, uh, Jacobs, who very strategically secrets herself, um, looking not only to secure her own liberty um, away from North Carolina, but thinking very strategically about how to secure the liberty of her children, which eventually she will achieve. Um, Celia, on the other hand, with two small children. Um, and th there's that moment when it seems to be the case, right, that she gives herself up in a, in a futile, right, but, but still powerful attempt, right, to um, deflect the threat that if she won't tell the story, she will be separated from her children. So this motherhood. Right? and the fate of one's children, the fate of one's relationship to one children, one's children. I think, is this Siobhan, what you were, what you were getting at? Um, this, is, um, this is, I think, a, a powerful um, similarity. Um, so here, um, on the one hand, we might think about um, Celia and Harriet Jacobs as two um, very powerful narratives, both of which speak to the pervasiveness, um, the terrible duress that sexual assault um, disproportionately visits upon enslaved women. These are two powerful examples. Um, but as we've also said across the semester, um, our work is partly um, not to collapse or reduce all enslaved women or all black women to one experience. And we can appreciate, I think, through this comparison, the ways in which time and place and circumstances um, are essential to explaining how it is that for Jacob's freedom, right, liberation um, comes by way of hiding, um, by way of fugitive um, status, by way of writing. Um, and for Celia, liberty, in a sense, right, comes through force through that club, through that violent confrontation, right? Two, two women's responses to what we might say at core um, is a shared experience and at the same time um, an experience that is framed very differently and has, as we know, vastly different outcomes.
So I want to shift now because part of the way we've been talking about Celia's case, um, particularly as we compare her experience um, to that of Harriet Jacobs, allows us to talk about um, the social world in a very ambitious and open-ended way. Um, and here I want to shift to underscore the ways in which once Celia's story, once Celia's case enters legal culture, the frame shifts and becomes much more narrow, more focused, more specialized, more determined um, by the strictures um, or the questions of investigators, of judges, of lawyers, um, than by the whole of Celia's experience. And so while there are many things we might know about Celia's case, I want to talk a little bit about how we approach some of the evidence, if you will, um, and how legal culture thinks about that evidence. We're going to look at the transcriptions of some of the material from Celia's trial record. I want to pause at this juncture to give um, uh, appreciations to uh, a former U of M uh, undergraduate, uh, Alison Gorsuch. Alice was a Allison was a senior here um, some years ago uh, in the program in American Culture. She wrote a senior thesis, an excellent senior thesis, on the history and the memory of the Celia case. Allison transcribed the trial record that manuscript material, um, and it's her transcriptions that we'll take a look at over the next few minutes. You all will appreciate, Allison, I know, since we ourselves wrestled with transcribing the letters of Sarah Maps Douglas. Um, Allison spent a year um, first transcribing and then analyzing these materials, um, and she continues today to still work on the, senior, on the Celia case as a JD PhD student at Yale. Um, so I'm really glad we have a chance to look at her early work on the Celia case. So here, uh, what we have in the record um, are sworn, sworn testimonies um, prior to the trial as part of the inquest. Um, some of the figures, local farmers who have come to the Newsom farm, have talked with the family, have talked with Celia, have talked with George. Uh, um, they provide sworn um, statements um, to the inquest body as they determine whether or not Celia should be indicted for murder. So here, William Powell, who we know is a local farmer, um, tells us something of what we know about this, I think, um, important, but again, hard to figure out figure, and that is George. Right? I don't know about you, but after I read Celia's case the first time, George was one of the most um, intriguing, important, um, but difficult to situate figures. Um, and you've read some of uh, Melton McLaurin's, historian Melton McLaurin's um, interpretation of George, but today we're going to back up a little bit and come back to the evidence. And I want to ask you um, how you think we should understand the role of George in this story based upon the testimony that we have. So here, William Powell, a local farmer, he's relating um, his um, confrontation with George the day after Newsom has disappeared. 
I asked his Negro boy, George, where he thought he was, that is, where Newsom was. He stated he did not believe it was worthwhile to hunt for him anywhere except close around the house, for he had reasons to believe he was not far off. I told him he had better go and show us the old man if he knew where he was. He stated he believed the last walking he had done was along this path, that is, the path between Newsom's home and Celia's cabin, pointing to the path leading from the house to the Negro cabin, that's Celia's cabin. From the statement of George, I believed he had been destroyed or killed in the Negro cabin, in Celia's cabin. So here we have Powell. Um, George is not, um, does not give a formal statement um, at this state in the proceeding. Um, we hear George's words filtered through Powell's ideas, um, but we have the suggestion that, what? That George has somehow, if not implicated Celia, he certainly has implicated Celia's cabin, right? as the site of Newsom's demise. And as we know, this will lead Powell and others to more closely scrutinize the area around Celia's cabin, but also to more closely scrutinize Celia herself, right? This is part of what precedes then the confrontation with Celia. Powell also testifies at the trial. And in the record, we have a transcription of his oral testimony. And here on cross-examination, which is to say, as he's being examined by the attorneys for Celia, he again speaks of George. I went into the cookhouse where Celia was. I told her she knew where her master was, that George had said enough to make me believe she knew where he was. She denied it. So now, George is even more deeply implicated, isn't he? Even more deeply implicated. Um, Powell is now relating, again, his interpretation, his memory of his first confrontation with Celia in the kitchen. Um, he says, I told her she knew where her master was, that George had said enough to make me believe she knew where he was. Well, not exactly what he's told us just prior, right? George said. George, has said. George said something about the vicinity of Celia's cabin. So we can see the ways in which Powell and others who are investigating this case begin to discern that between Celia and George might be a space in which they can insert some doubt, um, it, d insert some confusion um, that might net them um, more evidence, might even net them a confession, right? So how beginning to play Celia and George off one another, um, in a sense, um, and um, embellishing, perhaps, even, um, what George has said to him. But Celia, as we know at this juncture, remains resolute um, that she had nothing to do with this. Finally, Jefferson Jones. And Jefferson Jones, you'll remember, um, is a neighboring farmer, a large farmer in Fulton, whose farm is just adjacent to that of the Newsom family. 
Jefferson Jones is one of the first um, people outside of the Newsom family itself on the scene. Um, and his testimony will play an important role both in the indictment of Celia and ultimately in her conviction. Jones himself is a small slaveholder in Fulton. At trial, he testifies. Said he was standing in the middle of the room when she struck him, the Cecilia. I asked her whether she had told anyone that she intended to kill the old man. Jones has a theory, right, that perhaps there's a modest conspiracy afoot, right? Perhaps Celia was premeditated um, in her plan. Um, I asked her whether she had told anyone that she intended to kill the old man. She said that she never had. I told her that George had run off and that she might as well tell if he had had anything to do with killing the old man. She said that George need not have run off for that he knew nothing about it. I asked her if George had advised her to kill the old man. Another theory, right? Um, not only that she had, in fact, had premeditated, um, but in fact, that it was George, right, who had told her to kill Newsom. She said he never had said that George had told her that he would have nothing more to do with her if she did not quit the old man, said that George had been staying with her. So, yeah, Zamonte. Yeah, I, I was reading uh, a little bit online, digging in more detail, and I kind of feel like he, like, necessarily may not have told her to, but I feel like he pressured her into, like, have no other option but to kill, like, the master due to the fact that he won't have anything else to do with her if she didn't do anything. And that's because isn't the first kid is by the master and the second kid she was unsure, right? She didn't know if it was master or George. So, so I think we're unsure, probably we're most unsure about Celia's third child, right? Mm -hmm. She's pregnant at this moment and there is an open question about whether that child was fathered by Newsom um, or by George, right? So there is a strong suggestion that there is an intimate relationship between Celia. George stays with her. Um, this notion that George has um, urged Celia, suggested strongly to Celia um, that she should avoid Newsom. Um, it's possible that theirs is um, a more filial kind of relationship, that they are friends like brother and sister, and George is looking out for Celia's best interest. But it seems to be um, more likely, right, um, that he had been staying with her, that they had an intimate relationship um, of a sort. Um, and there's no question now, when we get to the testimony of Jones, um, that Celia herself is reinforcing the theory um, that um, certainly George played a role in this story, though she's quite resolute still, even here um, in her confrontations with Jones, um, that George has not um, advised her to harm Newsom, did not conspire with her to kill Newsom, did not have a physical hand either in harming Newsom or disposing of the body. These are all the kinds of questions that we have. But it's clear there's a role. He goes on. She said, uh, struck with the right hand on the right side of his head. I asked her if she did not know that she could not have struck him, as she said, and if George had not struck the old man from behind. She said he did not, that he knew nothing about it and was not there at the time. Right? So again, Jones has pressed this theory that George has a role, and Celia remains consistent throughout the many um, opportunities uh, that um, she has to tell her own story. She remains resolute 
that George did not have a role. So when I look back on this testimony um, and I ask myself, why do I have, why, why am I still have questions about George? I think there's no fact more for me, and you'll tell me if this is true for you, there's no fact that's more provocative um, than that one in which we learn um, that Jones tells Celia that George has run off. Did you have a reaction to this notion that George has apparently, according to Jones, run off? How, how should we, or how might we interpret George's running off at this juncture? And why does that, uh, why do you think that shapes my um, initial impressions of George? Yeah. Reading that he ran off, I'm like, I don't know. It just makes it seem like like he did have something to do with it, or like like he's um, guilty of something. And he, for me, I felt like it was kind of messed up if him and Celia are together. Why would he point out that Mr. Newsom was at her cabin? You know, I don't know. If it was me, I'd probably be like, oh, I don't know like where he was at or I have no idea or maybe he was over with the chickens or something. I wouldn't like point her out like that. So I just felt very weird about George from like the beginning. Um, I George like, I mean, she like. What, what in this, what in this, can you, I mean, can you point to something? I know it's your gut, but tell me um, when you point to this, is there something in this testimony or other the testimony that leads you, despite Celia tells you over and over again, George had nothing to do with it. Why do you think that? Well, because simply like he ran away when the master died. Like that's pointing out that you're like guilty. Cause you're not gonna like, he didn't run away when he was there, but all of a sudden that he dies, oh, George left. So I feel like, and plus, I don't know if, like, she could be strong enough, obviously, to, like, kill, but I feel like, like, she'll need some help from a man, because I feel like, like, slaves back then, I guarantee she, like, feared her master, so she wouldn't want to do it by herself. So I feel like George, like, kind of helped her out. Okay, I've got a lot of hands, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work my way across the room. So, go ahead. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, sometimes also, like, help. Help uh, put him in a fire at least, like with something help, with some type of help uh, for the killing of it. And also like for any man, like any man in like uh, slavery, I would think like, you know, this man is like sexually abusing my girl and like, okay, you can't do anything about it. But when I have the opportunity, I'm pretty sure like somebody will react to it. So obviously he's dead now, no one wants to get caught. So I'm gonna try to help my girl whatever they were at the time, uh, get, a, get rid of the body. Okay. Yeah, so, so nobody gets in trouble. I got Siobhan, and I'm coming, I'm coming this way. Siobhan, and then we're gonna, come, uh, we're gonna come across to Molly. I think everyone wants to believe that a woman isn't strong enough to actually have the power to kill him. So I think the, what the court is trying to do is, I think it's like already established the threat of a black man of how strong he is, how aggressive they assume he is, but for a black woman to have that kind of power to kill a master would just pose a whole nother issue. So I think what the court is just trying to do is trying to kind of justify the situation saying it's a strong, 
aggressive black man, black slave man that did it versus a slave woman that did it. And I think that with George, I mean, he already threw her under the bus anyways, but at that point when she was in the court, she had a chance to kind of get revenge on him if she wanted to. So I felt the way he might have felt is if they, you know, say anything involving her children in the court, she might say anything, you know, to get out of the situation. So at that point, he really was at the mercy of Celia. So I feel like he, for self-preservation, he did the best thing for himself by running away. Okay, when well, come on, Molly. I think George definitely had something to do with it because how else would he know where, like, why would he suggest where um, Mr. Newsom was if he didn't have something to do with it? Like, it doesn't make sense either. She told him and he was, I guess, like, covering for her and by not saying that she did it or he helped. And it does seem to me like, I guess Celia was about my age. I don't think I could, like, pull the dead body of a, of a, like, an old man. I don't think I'm strong enough, so I don't really see how... I don't see how she could do that by herself, especially if she's pregnant and sick. Yes. Yeah. Just. Um, we did talk about other women that um, people were afraid of black women because they were so strong. So I don't know. I think you'd be capable of pulling a dead body if you had to. But um, um, in terms of George, I feel like maybe Celia felt like she needed him to be um, out of the case because. She was very attached to her children, and like we said, there's only two adults, um, black adults, at this family farm. And so if uh, he was convicted too, there would be no one to watch her children. But I couldn't imagine what she felt like if they told her he had ran, because where would her children go? Um, and I don't really feel like that was ever fully discussed. Okay, got one here. Only two adult slaves. I think had you know we don't know if they had an intimate relationship, but if they did, he would be her only quote unquote family that she yeah. had, and I think she would have done anything to protect him, even if he had been involved and he had run away. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also think that. Um, I mean, not like yeah. He if he did run away, he like left her under the bus, but at the same time, I don't think that like implies guilt necessarily because there are only two slaves um, on this farm. And like, I don't think that they would have, like just the way the systems of slavery worked, I don't think they would have like seen George innocent in any way. So like I, like, I think he could have run away to like save himself and that doesn't necessarily imply guilt. And like that's something that's still really prevalent today in a lot of like people like people who like don't really have like the means to fairly represent themselves in court like tend to do things because they feel like they have no other option and it like makes them look way worse but it doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty. And also like you could also see how a lot of times when people are like investigating um, they kind of say things that aren't necessarily true to get to like responses they want. So like this also could have been like something that um, Jefferson Jones was like saying to be like, look, George ran away, it's all on you. Like tell us everything you know mm -hmm. because you're the only one left and we're, all, we're gonna pin it on you. So it could also be like a device to like get a confession out of her. Good, a couple more? Yeah. Um, I, it's hard to like, 
make an idea of what possibly could happen because everyone has different ideas. But I just questioned like she. It took her like six hours to like get everything clean and to do everything. Like where was George in that time if he stayed with her? Like what could he have possibly been or like came home and not you know see like anything that happened? So like for him to run away, it's just like even if he didn't have something to do with it, he could have known that she did it. So it made him like afraid. So like, so he left and he didn't want to have like anything to do with it. So yeah. Good. Lindsay, you want one more? While we're talking about evidence, I'm just kind of curious, like why, what would be, what would have been the reasons why there would have been a fire in her cabin in June? I don't know. I'm just kind of like, oh, so the fire in the cabin, cooking, right? Okay, okay. Cooking first and foremost, I think probably in June. So, okay. um, so not so unusual there to have been a fire, though maybe the quantity ultimately of ashes um, turns out to be a little suspicious. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on, but this is good, right? And I'm glad to know you all, after reading this evidence, um, share sort of my initial sort of um, unsettledness about the role of George. Um, and let's remember that all we have in terms of evidence are the testimonies of the neighboring farmers, right, who narrate for us what they say George said, what they say Celia said. And so it would be a, a mistake, I think, right, to rest too much confidence, right, in this testimony. We have the sense, even from this little testimony, the ways in which these investigators are twisting, embellishing, emphasizing some facts in an effort to extract um, confessions here in an effort to um, secure a conviction. Um, so I think as readers, right, as researchers, as historians, um, we read this with caution, right? Um, just because Jones tells us about that George had run off, look at what he says. I told her that George had run off. He doesn't say George had run off. I told her that George had run off. And we're not surprised, right, that, that in the telling of that, true or false, um, is an effort, right, our sense, is an effort, right, to break Celia down, right, and to um, encourage her to implicate George, right, just for the reasons that you suggest, right, that it could be read as George having abandoned Celia, right, in this extraordinary moment. So how do we deal with this as historians? That is to say, it's powerful testimony, it's provocative testimony, it certainly shapes um, our ideas, our perceptions, our understandings of what transpired in this case and the role that George played. And as we've done in other examples, um, we have to think critically. And one way to do that is to look for new evidence, to look for alternative evidence um, that might help us fill in some of the blanks, right? piece together the puzzle of George. So you all know that um, uh, last weekend, uh, last, no, it wasn't last, even last weekend, it was last Wednesday, um, I spent the day with the Celia Project, our working group on the history of the Celia case, and we visited Fulton, um, Missouri. 
And uh, one of the places that we visited was the Kingdom of Callaway Historical Society, where, uh, where they don't have the trial record. We already had the trial record from um, the court archives. Um, but they had the estate records of Robert Newsom. Why is this interesting? Well, after Newsom dies, um, and we all know that he's killed in June of 1855, it will be necessary for his heirs and the legal um, representatives of his estate to take an inventory to accumulate all of his assets and all of his debts and distribute his um, estate to his various heirs, his children, his grandchildren, and the like. Um, and the records of that legal proceeding, right, which is in a sense a companion, right, but outside of the prosecution of Celia for murder, um, those court records have also survived. Um, the originals are there in the Kingdom of Callaway um, inventory, uh, estate records. And um, while I know you can't see it here, um, toward the bottom here um, is the inventory of the slaves in the household. Um, and there is um, one Negro man, George, valued at $900. So George had not disappeared at all. And when it comes time to inventory this estate, there is George, and if we continue through the record, what we find then is that George himself will be sold. He'll be sold to a slaveholder in nearby Saline County for more than his value, for $1,190, um, and that he hadn't, in fact, disappeared at all. So here, for me, this changes right, a lot. How I read right, that testimony that comes from the local farmers. They might have said George ran off, but it appears that George hadn't disappeared at all. And George is ultimately as caught up in his own way right, in the aftermath of Newsom's killing as a Celia. Right? He's not ever charged or convicted of Newsom's murder, but he is subject to what we've come to understand is another right, of slavery's most harsh practices. He's sold away, right? He's sold away from the community that he knows, from the household that he knows, from the people whom he knew best. Um, George now is sold away. And I think it changes, right? It changes how we read that testimony, and it helps us appreciate what a fraught bit of evidence that trial record is, right? As people sell layers of stories upon stories, um, our work going forward in unraveling the mysteries of the Celia case requires us to reach beyond that trial record um, and to read it alongside these other materials um, as a way then of perhaps for me, suggesting about the ways in which Celia and George, both in their own ways, right, were caught um, in the vice of this household of Newsom's abuse and the fallout from Celia's effort to defend herself. They're both caught up in this story in harsh ways. I'll point out as an aside, because, and I hope we'll come back to it, um, below the entry there for George in the inventory um, are then um, the other two slaves in this household, and they are children, Celia's children. Um, one, a girl 
named Jane, who's three years old, and a girl, uh, sorry, a girl named Viney, um, who is three years old, and the second, a girl one and a half years old named Jane. Um, both here valued at $150 each. And I can tell you that when George is sold, when we, when we encounter the record of George's sale, alongside is the sale of Celia's two daughters out of the Newsom household as well. So new evidence um, allows us to add new layers and think with important nuance about this case. One more, um, I think, important question, slavery um, and the law of rape. Let's go back to the trial. Part of what you know is that um, at the end of this trial, um, the presiding judge, the trial judge, will instruct the jurors in this case. What does it mean to instruct the jurors? Here, jurors are not legal professionals. They don't have any special knowledge of the law, be it of rape, um, be it of murder, be it of self-defense. And part of the court's role is at the end of the hearing of the evidence to instruct the jury, to educate the jury, to direct the jury um, about the law so that jurors can weigh the evidence and ultimately the question of Celia's guilt against the law um, as the court instructs it. So I want to look um, again at um, the state law um, and then at the actual jury instructions in this case. Um, and we learn, I think, from this the ways in which the powerful role that um, a local judge's interpretation of the law, the powerful role that plays in determining Celia's fate. Celia's lawyers, you will recall, have attempted to introduce evidence and to argue that Celia, while she killed Newsom, is not guilty of first-degree murder. Why? Because by Missouri law, an individual who understands him or herself to be the imminent victim of a felony, to be in the imminent fear of bodily harm, has the right to respond to that in self-defense. The argument is that Celia, while she killed Newsom, did so defending herself against Newsom's commission of a felony, the felony of rape or defilement in Missouri. And here is the statute um, that is um, key to determining whether or not Celia was, in fact, in imminent fear of being raped. Let's read it together. Every person who shall take any woman unlawfully against her will and by force, menace, or duress compel her to marry him or to marry any other person or to be defiled upon conviction thereof shall be punished by imprisonment in the penitentiary not less than three nor exceeding five years. What are the key words here for our consideration? Any woman unlawfully against her will. Any woman unlawfully against her will. How do you read this as it applies to Celia? Mary. Um, that makes the assumption that the woman in question has um, will, in fact. And I know that as a slave, um, that they are, that 
no such will exist, and I think that's why that the court did not recognize her um, self-defense claim. Good. So it is any woman against her will, and I think one of the key questions here, right, that the court must implicitly resolve for itself before it instructs the jury is, is Celia a woman with will? Does she have will as an enslaved woman such that she can resist? Yeah, Peter. Uh, and the uh, upcoming conviction thereof. So I think that's incompatible with the idea of slavery at the time. So it's okay for the like slave owner to order something to, to the slaves, but that upon conviction thereof says that those two things are incompatible. Right, so here um, every person, right, being, including Newsom, right, upon conviction, could Newsom have been convicted, right? Could he have been convicted in this same local court for the defilement of Celia? Yeah, all right. Less about like against her will and more about the unlawfully part because I think it's like more I mean I know there was all that like dehumanization of slaves but I think the point was more that like as a slave that like she didn't have the protection under the law to like have to like that being against her will was um, counted as rape because she was property and therefore um, he could do whatever she wanted, but like less so about her will and more if it was unlawfully against her will. Excellent, excellent. So excellent close reading. And so here we have a judge in central Missouri in the mid-1850s who has to read this language and ask himself, what is the state of the law? How should I interpret the law in this specific instance? A slave-holding man, an enslaved woman, is the will of the master absolute, right? Such that Celia has no will, right? No will to resist. Is the phrase any woman actually implicitly qualified? And does it really mean any free woman, any white woman, um, right? All of these things are questions, right? That in Celia's example are in the hands of a local judge. How does this play out? Well, prior to actually charging the jury, giving the jury instructions, the judge solicits from lawyers for both sides, the prosecutor and the defense lawyer, their recommendations for charges um, to be proposed. Here's the wonderful manuscript document, which I haven't asked you to read because we have Alison Gorsuch's excellent transcriptions. Um, but here, this is the jury instruction, one of the jury instructions, but the key jury instruction that is proposed by Celia's team, right? And I note, this instruction is refused by the judge. He declines to then direct the jury in this way. But the defense argues, if the jury believes from the evidence that Celia did kill Newsom, but that the killing was necessary to protect herself against a forced sexual intercourse with her, on the part of said Newsom, and there was imminent danger of such forced sexual connection being accomplished by Newsom, they will not find her guilty of murder in the first degree. Right? So here is an interpretation of the law right, that brings together that statute that we looked at with the defense, self-defense. 
um, and makes an argument, provides a frame for how the jury might interpret this evidence, right? This is, the, this is the argument made by Celia's lawyers, and what we recognize here, right, is that this is Celia's story, right? Celia's story, the story that she has told over time, bit by bit, but ultimately again and again, right, is one in which she understood herself to be in imminent danger of a forced sexual encounter with Newsom. And when she finds herself in such danger, she acts in self-defense, right? Not to intentionally kill Newsom, but to defend herself against sexual assault. So here, Celia's testimony, right, Celia's narrative, Celia's critique of her own circumstances then informs and makes its way into this proposed jury instruction. Let's look at the instruction that the court actually delivers. If Newsom was in the habit of having intercourse with the defendant who was his slave and went to her cabin on the night he was killed to have intercourse with her or for any other purpose, and while he was standing on the floor talking to her, she struck him with a stick, which was a dangerous weapon, and knocked him down and struck him again after he fell and killed him either by blow, it is murder in the first degree. It's an extraordinary jury instruction, in part because it is so specific to the facts, right? Here the court has, by way of the prosecutor's proposal, adopted a version of the law that almost is a blueprint, right, in a sense for Celia's story, except that the conclusion is, right, the conclusion is counter, right, absolutely counter to the conclusion the defense team is often. Defendant, in case the jury is not clear, defendant had no right to kill him because he came to her cabin and was talking to her about having sexual intercourse with her or anything else, or anything else. So do you see here, right, the way in which in this moment the court, by way of the crafting of jury instructions, is now closing the possibilities, narrows the possibilities for the outcome in this trial. Very little space in which this jury might maneuver if it otherwise expected to exonerate Celia, um, because the court almost in essence says, if she did the act, right, there's no defense available to her. And we know she did the act. Yes, Peter. So were this court decision particular to so, um, so say it again. Is, was it particular to enslaved women, or was it in particular to enslaved women? Is Peter's question, and it's a good question. Um, so, I think the first thing to say, not quite a court decision, right? Here, a jury instruction, um, which is powerful and and a powerful framing. But the decision, if you will, is ultimately a verdict, the verdict of guilty rendered by the jury itself. Um, but to your um, central question, is this particular to Celia, to enslaved women, what do you think when you look at the language? What do you think? Is this particular to enslaved women, or is this an instruction that could be given to in the case of any woman? Yeah. I think it's just particular to Celia, and we don't know if it's to 
I'll say women, we'd have to look at more because this is so specific to her case. Yeah. yeah. So partly we would need to look um, more broadly at other cases. There are very few such cases in Missouri um, in this period. We could look at this alongside um, other um, similar cases in other jurisdictions. And part of what we'd learn is that this is a moment in which um, not only Missouri, but other slaveholding states, the most, um, the most uh, memorable being Mississippi, are also grappling openly with the question of sexual assault, rape, enslaved women, um, and also concluding that this sort of rule, this sort of configuration, is specific to enslaved women, right? It's specific to women who are not free. There's that qualifier, right? The defendant who was his slave, right? Um, and so we get the sense the way in which the court is um, bringing in this fact, even though it's not expressly provided for in the law, right, that he's developing a kind of common law, we would say, um, around slavery and sexual violence. Yeah, Mary. Um, I think the theme seen here in the jury instruction um, also predates this, and the testimony of um, where it was said that George ran away, and that was, you know, as we can tell now, was false, and I think that was because um, it fed into the social influences that we see here, it, because not only does it implicate a black man as being violent, which was a popular image, um, then and now, but that's controversial, um, but also to, it would, to um, grant Celia's claim of self-defense would also set legal precedent that would have to be recognized not only in the state of Missouri but in courts um, nationwide and that would unravel just you know the roots of slavery as being um, a dehumanizing institution. Right. So one of the questions that this, this, this choice right, by the judge leaves us with is what would be the implications, right? What would be the implications to conclude otherwise, right? And our, um, our readings more generally, Darlene Clark-Hine and others have suggested to us the ways in which this sort of story, right? This sort of circumstance, right? That begins with the sexual assault of enslaved women by an owner um, is all too common a story, right? And to open the door to the possibility that enslaved women might be able to, in fact, formally charge their owners with rape, right? Seek prosecution for sexual assault, and even more so, to be able to defend themselves um, opens a door, right? Appears to open a door um, that certainly this court is not willing to open, and I think no court is, is willing to open in the 1850s. A couple of more things. So I want to end just to talk about um, where we are with the Celia case in some sense. You all written, uh, read uh, Melton McLaurin's 1991 book, which really popularized Celia's story and has made it possible for us to teach Celia. Um, but the work continues. Um, Celia still is not as well remembered as that other 1850s uh, Missouri case involving slavery, Dred Scott versus Sanford, a case that we've mentioned um, and many of you know about in which an enslaved man sues for his freedom having been brought to free territory, ultimately decided by the Supreme Court that he is a slave. Um, the Dred Scott case is one we study and read um, and situate in the canon of slavery and law. Um, Celia um, 
perhaps not yet, has not quite made it um, to that sort of space. Um, but there are important local figures who have worked to preserve the memory of Celia. And so I want to just point to some of these in closing. Here in 1995, on the left, you see Margaret Bush Wilson. Wilson was um, she's now deceased, but was um, a um, longstanding and much admired um, attorney, civil rights attorney in St. Louis, Missouri. And she herself learned of Celia's story and um, became much admiring of Celia and wanted to work to help to remember Celia and to bring her story to light. Um, she commissions um, in the 1990s um, the portrait you see on the left, um, an oil portrait uh, of Celia done by the artist on the right, Solomon Thurman um, in St. Louis, who the Celia Project met this uh, past weekend. Um, we were very privileged to meet him and learn more about his work on Celia's portrait. But here is a moment in which we have local figures working um, in important ways to preserve and to bring Celia's story to light. This portrait hangs briefly um, in the Missouri Historical Society before it becomes part of um, Margaret Bush Wilson's personal collection. The poem that um, Margaret Bush Wilson writes, her tribute to Celia, gives you a sense about um, the purpose um, of Celia's memory um, for at least Margaret Bush Wilson, it is on the one hand um, about restoring that story to visibility, right? Extracting it from the historical record and bringing it to light. But for Margaret Bush Wilson, Celia is an inspiration, right? Celia is an inspiration. We stake strength from your courage um, in our own time, right? As we face strife, we take strength from your courage. So one interpretation of Celia's story is that it inspires us to be courageous in our own lifetimes. In Fulton, Missouri, um, from, uh, for the last, from about 2005, I think, to 2011 or 12, local residents gathered on the, um, the anniversary of Celia's execution to hold a candlelight vigil and to pay tribute to her. Once again, bringing her out from historical obscurity, holding her case up. In this instance, why Celia? Well, this is groups that want to talk about racism in the 21st century. And so Celia is part of a narrative. Racism then, racism today. We still have racism in Fulton. So Celia, again, takes on a kind of symbolic value for telling a long history of racism in this local community where she lived and where she died. Finally, there have been two stage productions, one locally in Filton and the other in London, England, um, both um, dramatic dramatizations of Celia's story. Powerful, right, bringing Celia's story to mass audiences. Um, but in both of these instances, playwrights taking important creative license to give Celia words, for example, that we know she never spoke. Right. From all the records that we have, we have no unmediated words of Celia. So here, Celia's story reaching large audiences, but becoming, in a sense, fictionalized. You remember when we talked last time about Harriet Tubman and that Hillary Clinton moment when she quotes Tubman, right? The dangers, right, of the kind of fictionalization. So the Celia Project, this group of scholars coming back to the case, is doing the work partly of 
um, trying to understand these new archives, these additional archival materials that go beyond the court record, like the Newsom estate inventories. And we went to the site of the Newsom farm. And here's where I think, um, as much as I think I wanted to end by telling you that the historians are really the bastion of evidence and social science, um, that we won't get caught up in romance or memory or myth or, um, or fiction when it comes to Celia, I'll leave you just to contemplate um, this scene, which is um, our team out um, on the uh, what is now federal land in Fulton, um, the site where the Newsom family um, and the Newsom farm stood, the site of um, this dramatic moment in the life of Celia. Um, all that's left are some um, foundation stones and old trees and open fields. Uh, but here, historians too, um, wanting in some sense um, to walk that walk, the 60 paces from the house to the cabin, um, to in some sense try and inhabit Celia's world, um, to try and be closer um, in some sense to her and to her experience. And I think we'd all say, well, there wasn't much evidence here. Um, it was extraordinarily powerful to walk for an afternoon, um, the walk that Celia had walked those many years ago. So we'll stop here. When I see you next time, we'll continue with this theme of history and memory and myth um, by looking at the case of Sojourner Truth. You all will read Nell Painter's extraordinary biography of Sojourner Truth, and we'll look at the ways in which Painter tries to pull apart history from myth um, in the life of that extraordinary figure. Thank you all very much. Have a great day. I'll see you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.